I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello, Dungeonistas, and welcome to the Rugby Dungeon. Thank you for listening. Thank you for subscribing. Also, find us on Twitter. I'm at Jay Beardmore. This podcast is at The Rugby Dungeon. And, of course, there's Egg Chasers, the world's biggest rugby podcast. And that is me, Tim and Phil, every Monday. Done it for four years. If listening to it is not enough as well, you can watch us on Facebook Live. And we do that every Sunday so you can see us put the thing together live. And, yeah, it's good fun. You'll, you, you should enjoy it, basically. Also... Please give us a review on iTunes. It's of huge importance that you do. It does things with algorithms, which social media people go mental about, and it's very important according to them, which is enough for me. Also, I quite enjoy reading the reviews. So if you're going to do that, I very much appreciate it. And you know, just call it a small price to pay for doing these podcasts. And that's, that's all we ask. Leave a review on iTunes. Done. Two more announcements. Firstly is the Thistle Rugby podcast. Now, the Thistle you might have heard of before, Matt, David and Alan, part of the wider rugby family that we've got going on down here, this little network of podcasts coming out of the Rugby Dungeon, um, and they discuss purely Scottish rugby. Have a listen. Very, very good guys, and I predict they're going to do pretty well out of this whole podcasting business. The second announcement is a little bit weird, but it does link to the whole rugby family thing because it's a rugby league game. London Scholars, 20th of January, will be playing Wigan Warriors at the Honourable Artillery Company. Now, the reason this is important is A, it's going to be in the City of London, so it'll be a good time to have a drink, and B, Mike Ford will be speaking, so the Toulon team will be invited because they are due to play Saracens the day after. The third reason it's going to be interesting is the London Scholars will be the first ever team to play a game against the Canadian team, Toronto Timberwolves. This this is as mad as it sounds. There's a Canada-based team playing in the third level of rugby league. Now, if you're going to attempt something as crazy as this, uh, we, we will probably give you a little bit of support plugging your events. So we will be there. If there is a game prior to London Scholars Wigan game, me and Tim might even be playing in that game game of rugby league, which will be somewhat interesting. And afterwards, we'll be around for a drink and a chat, and who knows, it should be really, really good fun. If your club's doing something interesting, let let us know. We we love hearing about these things. The reason we do the podcast is to have rugby related fun anyway. So as long as there's um you know something unique about it or something interesting we'll try and help you in any in any way possible so london scholars 20th of january honorable artillery company have a look on their website ask them about it because they can tell you these details in a far more eloquent way than i can hopefully me tim and phil will be there if not definitely tim more most likely me and tim who knows 
Okay, enough with the announcements. We've got an interview to do, and let's face it, that's why you've downloaded the podcast. So without making you wait any more, here is the interview. Please enjoy it. So I am very happy to be joined on the podcast by Mr. Matt Gitto. How are you, Matt? I'm good. A little nervous, actually. First podcast. So really? I, I thought all you guys would be uh, media trained to the nth degree. Oh, uh, yeah. I've never done a podcast. So I think we've done media and whatever, but uh, the training we don't really focus too much on. Well, I've been doing it for a little while now, and if I can do it, you can definitely do it. <laughs> okay, great. Thanks for that. So what have you been up to today, mate? What has been going on in the life of a Toulon rugby player? Well, at the moment I'm injured, so I had um, rehab, uh, what bike, fitness session, mm-hmm. physio, massage, um, and at the moment I'm living alone. My wife and kids are in Australia. They've stayed there mm-hmm. uh, for an extra few more weeks, and today is our anniversary, and I forgot all about it. Oh, no. Yeah, you'll be living alone for a few more weeks. Yeah, so she called me uh, later on and said, is it before? And said, you haven't forgotten anything? So the time zone's obviously different, so it was earlier in the day. I was like, no, like, just because it's a Monday. Like, for me, I don't look at dates. I just know <laughs> Monday, I play on a Saturday. So Monday, I've got legs or whatever, and fitness. Tuesday, I've got conditioning or skills or whatever. I only look at it like that. I never look at the date. Well, um, and, yeah, I'd forgotten the anniversary. So Yeah, that's a pretty tricky one. Yeah, well, there's no real way around it. I just said, yeah, look, you've got me. But it's the sixth year, sixth wedding anniversary, so I talked to her around just saying, look, I don't like the number six, so I think we should just let it go. Very wise. So what's your current injury then? So I did my ankle back in August when mm-hmm. I played the All Blacks, went back, lasted 10 minutes uh, playing for Australia and just got my foot caught in a real awkward situation and my studs were caught and I couldn't move. Mm-hmm. Um, and I basically fractured the ankle low and then the tibia, tib or fib, the, the fib, whichever the smaller bone in your oh wow in your lower leg is, um, and I did all the ligaments there. So I've just slowly been uh, coming back. I've been running now for about 10 days. Mm-hmm. Uh, tomorrow I've got to go again, hopefully run more than 3K, and then if I get that out, then we can start to progress with jumping and all that type of thing. So did you need surgery on that? Yeah, yeah, so I had surgery, mm-hmm. um, and then that was, oh, when was that, August 29th, so it's like close to three and a bit months, and first 30 days, you got to sleep with a boot, and it's hot, and yeah, just, it was a real tough month after that first bit of surgery, but now it's good, I, I see progression, and you know, running well, and getting involved in skills, and all that type of stuff. Huh, okay, well... I always think if I ever get to meet a player, there are certain questions I've got to ask him. And for you, it's this, the name Gitto. I've never heard of it before I came across you at Super Rugby. I've not encountered anyone since with that name. Where's it from? It's from France, uh, the Britannia region. So since I've been here, yeah, um, five years, like I had people come up to me talking through the history. And in the Britannia region, there is 1,200 Giddos. I've, I've never seen the name myself either. Really? Nowhere in Australia other than your cousins. It's, um, so I was interested in it. I suppose Gitto, it's close to Ghetto. It's got the same, but just, which is French for cake over yeah. here. But um, yeah, that's, that's where it's from. So Excellent. So you've got some French lineage then? Yes. Yeah, so my, I think my great-grandfather is French. So... Uh- 
I missed out on the passport. Not that I was chasing it. Happy to be Australian <laughs> and uh, very proud to be Australian. But um, yeah, that's uh, my great grandfather. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then my father speaks no French. Um, even when he comes over here, all he can work out is is Le Mem shows, which just means the same again. Because oh really? When he's at the bar. That's all he needs. Well, your dad's a established rugby player in his own right, is he not? Well, he's a rugby league player. Mm. Um, established, I don't know about that. I did an interview um, in Australia before a test, and yeah. his name is Ron Giddo. And uh, the guy was saying, and then your father, you know, you've got great genes, you've come through the system, you know, uh, rugby league, but you've come to rugby union. But we just want to know, how is the great Johnny Giddo? And I was just <laughs> like, oh. I, said, oh, I don't know how John's going, but my father, Ron, he's doing okay. But I couldn't wait to tell him because he's always saying that I'm the that I'm the son of Ron. But I recently read in a in a rugby league book which talks about all the history of all the players, mm-hmm. and it says Ron Giddo, the father of Matt Giddo. So I finally won one over on him. <laughs> so finally, you've got to the stage or the level of fame you require not to be son of, but for him to be father of. Yeah, yeah, I say it all the time. I said, oh, yeah, Ron. Oh, yeah, I know Ron. He's the father. He's, he's my father. He's the father of Matt. So he, uh, he's, he's upset now. He's, um, he's happy to pass it on. So why, why did you end up playing rugby union? Why not rugby league? That would sound more logical to me. Yeah, I played, well, all my brothers played league. And um, actually, in my family, if you, if, if you played fourth grade rugby league compared to playing for the Wallabies, they see that fourth grade as a higher honour. So for us... In my family, rugby union's not held very high, um, <laughs> but I got into it because I was at a, a local school, just a public school, and I was getting mixed in with the wrong type of people, mm-hmm. and my parents then sent me to a private school uh, called St. Edmunds College, and the rules there, because at the time they, they weren't overly strong, but they wanted all the league players to play union. So the rules were if you played league, which wasn't offered by the school, if you played league outside uh, for another club, then you had to play union for the school on a Saturday, and the league was off was on a Sunday. Ah. Um, so I was forced to play it, and I hated it. Um, didn't enjoy rugby union until I got to year twelve, and I'd been brought through that school where you look up at the first fifteen, which is the the number one team for the school. Yeah. Um, you know, they're kind of like seen as gods a little bit throughout the school. So by the time I hit year 12, I, I wanted to play first 15. And the coach then said, if you want to play first, then you have to give up league. So I did, and that was it. Well, why have I heard of the name St. Edmunds College before? Is that a fairly famous rugby school? In Canberra, it's been pretty popular. There's George Gregan went there. That's the one, yeah. Um, so he probably would have made it famous. Yeah, it's definitely that, because... There used to be an Australian exchange student who used to brag about being in the same year as George Gregan, or actually a few years below, but the point remains. Yeah, that, that's definitely the one. So you, things must have progressed pretty quickly for you because one of those kind of pub quiz questions you get is who got a cap for the Wallabies prior to their club cap? Now, is, that is the case with you. You were picked for the, for the Wallabies before your club. Yeah, yeah, so I didn't even have a super rugby team. Wow. Um, so I got picked for the Wallabies and then the Brumbies at the time contracted me after that. Um, yeah, so I was playing for local Canberra 
uh, under 19s, the, the Colts they call it. Mm-hmm. And we were playing pretty well. We did well. We won that competition. From that, I got picked in uh, like a Canberra rep team. Yeah. Uh, on the bench um, behind a guy that was called Matt Henjack because I was a halfback at the time. Uh, he, not him, but the 5'8 got injured. And the coach asked me, he said, can you fill in just for one week at 5'8? Um, and I did. And things went okay for me. I'd never played there and things went well. And from that, Eddie Jones came to a – because I was also mixing in between that and the Australian Sevens. Yeah, okay. Uh, Eddie Jones – yeah, well, Eddie Jones came to – who was a national coach at the time. He came to a Sevens training camp, just one of our sessions. Came along barking like, go Gets, do this, run here, like he <laughs> normally does. And um, after the session, he just said that he was, to the coach, said he was really impressed with me just from training. And I don't know what I did and I didn't do anything special, didn't try and impress him. I don't know what happened. But there were then whispers that I was going to get picked on the Wallaby tour. And I was like, Wallabies? I said, I just want to make super rugby. I don't even have a super rugby team. Um, and I thought it was all a joke until I got a call from him saying, congratulations, mate, you've made the team. That's amazing. What? Yeah, it was a spin-out. And then, yeah, I went, then I was on the Wallaby tour. And I got a cap when I was over there. My first cap was against England. Um, and I'd be the first to admit I wasn't ready for it. And I played pretty poorly. Mm-hmm. Actually, at the time, Eddie had a system where for everything positive you did, you got one point. Yeah. And for everything negative, you lose a point. So if you just throw a pass and the other person catches it, that's one. Throw a bad pass, minus one. Miss a tackle, minus one. Make a tackle, plus one. Like that. I'm the only player to finish a game with minus. I was minus four from my first count. Oh, wow. Did you come on off the bench? I came on off the bench. We were down by a point, I think 32-31. Yeah. Uh, and I played, I think it was about 12 minutes. And yeah, it was just, I was looking for a hole to crawl into, but... Um, that's incredible though I mean yeah, that is genuinely was. incredible yeah so yeah it was, it was pretty uh, pretty rapid how it all happened so um, how old were you then? 19 19 just, just yeah. describe that because it's, it's a lazy question and I hate it when people ask just describe your first cup but this is actually a bit different because you've gone from what playing in front of hundreds of people maybe? yeah um, I think our grand final we got Maybe 1,500. Yeah. So <laughs> that's like a playoff game in, you know, level five or level four rugby. Uh, yeah. To Twickenham, which I presume is about 70-odd thousand. Yeah, well, it was packed at the time. And, um, yeah, it was – I mean, it's just – because I wasn't ready and even in my mind now, it's just all a blur yeah. because that's how I remembered it. Um, they just said warm up, and I was like, "What? Like, what do you mean warm up? You can't put me on the game's close." Um, but I obviously didn't say that. This is just in my head, yeah. kicking over. Then you get out there and you just try and do whatever you can do. But I, I mean, I hadn't really. I trained, but I hadn't prepared for a test. Like I'd train with the boys, but you don't take anything in. Like I'm getting passed off George Gregg and there's Steve Larkham there. Um, you know, like it's. Matt Burke was at fullback. It's just like you, you're not – I'm not taking anything in. Like I was nervous even just getting ready for a training session. And then I, I was out playing a test. Uh, who, who was captain that day? Captain would have been George Gregan, I'd say. He was captain at the time. 
And prior to the game, did you get any sort of special treatment, kind of the, you know, the arm around the shoulder, don't worry about it, just go out and play? No, I don't know. I think I, I genuinely can't remember. I just remember afterwards, um, Eddie Jones came up to my dad because my parents came over for it. And he said, well, what'd you think? And dad's just gone, yeah, he was shit, mate. <laughs> said, but he'll get better. That's just, and my dad still tells that story to this day. That was what he said. He said he was shit, but he'll get better. And then the next week I got another opportunity where I could play a bit longer and we were against Italy. Mm-hmm. Um, I went on, I made my passes, made a few tackles and felt a lot better about myself, but certainly didn't feel like I belonged in that um, arena. I'm guessing a super rugby contract was fairly easy to find after a Wallabies appearance then. Um. No, because I didn't know a great deal about me. I suppose I just I was a Canberra local, so the Brumbies was my my choice, the ACT Brumbies, and uh, I think just before I went away on the tour, so we obviously trained together as a squad before you go away after they've been picked. So prior to that, um, I had a meeting with the Brumbies, and I got um, got a contract that way, just a base contract, um, uh, obviously with incentives, if, which is what they do for. Your lower base players, they give you a contract, and if things go well, then you can progress financially that way. But I was just happy to get an opportunity. I imagine Super Rugby must have been relatively easy after all of that, then. Yeah, it was, but even Super Rugby for me was massive because you're still playing against all these international players, mm. but it's just in a club environment. And for me, it was still new. I used to get nervous playing for the ACT in that Queensland little rep thing. Yeah. I, before the Aussie Sevens, I never slept well. You know, it's just I've just always, um, yeah, I don't know. It's just uh, even the back end of my career, I was always still ner- not nervy, but you're excited and you just that fear of failure mm-hmm. um, was probably always there for me. Whether it was a Test game or Super Rugby game or even a trial for Super Rugby, because I always wanted to play well and I didn't want to do anything that would let myself down or embarrass myself. When deciding to join the Brumbies then, was it not a concern that you were going to be sat behind one of the greatest of all time in Stephen Larkham? I did not want to play fly half. I hated it. Um, I didn't like inside centre either. I'd been a halfback all my career until that one guy got injured and things then went well for me at 5'8". They said, oh, we're going to stick with this. And I was like, oh, just put me back on the bench, please. Like, I was comfy there, you know, like where you're in your comfort zone. Yeah. So for that, I had to get out of my comfort zone. And I didn't think I would play for the Brumbies, certainly not start. I, I was just working really hard to try and make the, the bench, um, which I did. I was on the bench for the first game. Um, then Stephen Larkham, I think, got uh, he got a stomach bug. And then I started in one game in South Africa. And then when I came back, when we came back to Australia after the two-week tour, I was moved to inside centre for the first time, which I'd never played. Mm. And at the time, all centres were 100 kilos at least. Yes. Like there were no – we were one of the first, I suppose, which had tried to stick with two ball players um, in your back line like that. So it, um, for, it was just really daunting for me because I knew each week that I'm going to get tested because I was tiny and I was new into the system. Like defensively, I was just going to be in for it. So it was always a real – mental battle for me to get up for those games. Yeah, you're not wrong about the size. You probably had people like well, Mortlock, Herbert, Gray. They were all substantial boys. Yeah, they were. I mean, even Elton Flatley, who yeah. isn't considered big, he was 90-something kilos. 
And at the time, when I went on the tour, I was 78. Wow, because so, uh, you listed about 80-something at the moment, but 78 is... Yeah, uh... yeah, so now I'm about 86. So I have eight kilos on what I had then. It was... Wow. Like, it, wasn't, it wasn't pretty. Yeah, well, yeah, that's actually quite incredible. Well, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned the um, the fact that you were a halfback when you started, because one of the things I wanted to get into was the time when you started playing halfback again, but under Scott Johnson. I didn't realise that you were a halfback to start with, so actually that isn't as weird as it came across o- uh, over here then. No, it's just the fact that I'd... Um that I hadn't played there since 2002. Mm-hmm. There were times when they'd often go possibly like a 6-2 bench, meaning that you go six forwards and two backs because if a halfback got injured, generally you carry a spare halfback, but if a halfback got injured, they would shift me. Yeah. So I'd spend a little bit of time training there, and at a pinch I'd be comfortable thrown in there for the last 20 minutes because you're into the rhythm of the game and it's fine. Mm-hmm. Um, but starting those tests when I knew George Gregan wasn't going to tour, I thought, um, it was going to be a big, big ask for me. And it was. It was tough. But um, by the end of the tour, um, I kind of felt like I'd found my feet a bit at halfback. But I was very happy like for the season to be done. And hopefully, I'd move back to my normal position. So when, for you, did it click into place that you wanted to play as a fly half or a 12? I think when I started playing with Stephen Larkham and Sterling Mortlock when I got moved there in, at the Brumbies, mm-hmm. um, we started things started going well. And at the end of that year, I was picked in the in the World Cup for Australia, and I played fly half and inside centre, and that's where I trained consistently. That I just felt comfortable there. Mm. Like moving into halfback just didn't feel normal for me anymore. So I just had to find my way of playing centre because I wouldn't play the way everyone was playing at that point, you know, because they're all so big and it just doesn't make sense for me to play that way. So we just use different plays where I'd use often Sterling would be that short runner and I'd just float around the back. And because he was a big guy, he often attract two defenders, which would leave me with a lot of space and time. So uh, I just got a lot of confidence that way. And, and then, yeah, it just became natural for me again, like halfback probably was when I first started it. Yeah, the sense of things interesting, actually, because I mentioned it on my other podcast, Egg Chasers, that the driver behind the change to having two playmakers isn't so much they want two playmakers. It's just so hard to play that traditional 12 role against modern defences. Yeah, well, that's the thing. Defences are getting better, and that's why teams need to get more creative. And I think you see a lot more attacking kicks now. Mm. Um, because defence is a, a better set and they, uh, everyone is just, I, I just think, more intelligent in defence than, than probably what they, they used to be because the game play was a bit more predictable. Yeah, I think you look at England now with their two ball players and possibly you even a lot of teams now have a 15, like a fullback that can, that can float in and around and help ball play and, and take the pressure off a 10 mm. because you want the team to to continue to have their structure, to continue to be a threat, but you also want that 10 to be a threat. So he needs to know that if he gets tackled, you're going to have the 12 that will step up or the fullback will will step up and the team just, just ticks along nicely, you know, even if the 10 does get tackled. Yeah. Well, I guess in Salon, you had exa- exactly that situation with yourself at 12 and Johnny at 10. 
yeah, and it was uh, obviously I think with myself and Johnny, we were. I really enjoyed playing with him. You know, you obviously saw how talented he was, and I think what worked well for us was he's very, um, very regimented. He has a a game plan that he knows will work, and he's very good at implementing that game plan. Mm-hmm. And then because I knew that he would steer the team around so well, I could float in and around the game a bit more. Yeah. So while he's directing, I can look for opportunities, and it, it turned out to be Johnny would do all the work, but I got a lot of the glory as far as <laughs> you know, tries and, and, and things like that. And obviously the longer that you play with someone, the more you get a connection and combination. And there were little plays and little things that I knew he liked to do, so I'd try and bring those into a game and call those so that he could have some fun too. You know, he's not just doing all the basic stuff. And I think you know, he, he really enjoyed that in the back end of his career. Okay, well, I just have a quick question then about, well, it's not a quick question, it's going to be a long question, about being a fly half. And this came from a documentary I was watching about the NFL, and it was a quarterback called Kyle Broller, I think, who went to his offensive coordinator and said, look, these are my five favourite plays to make me feel comfortable in the game. Can we incorporate them? And it just made me think, I've never heard that from a rugby player. I've certainly never heard it from a fly half when he's been interviewed about his favourite plays or the things he likes to do to settle him down. So... With you, do you ever go to the coach and say, look, these are things I'd like to incorporate immediately, or do you just implement what the coach has set up for you? Mm, I think you need to have – you don't just say, this is what I'm good at, mm. let's, let's just stick with that, because inevitably different teams defend different ways. You know, I think um, you just need to – I mean, I, I don't know anyone that goes, this is my best play, this is what we've got to do. No, I've, I certainly I've know that it. when you're under pressure – there's plays that you know you can do well, um, whether it's direct or you're looking to go wider, mm-hmm. and you generally go back to them. If you if you think you want to go to a, a direct play, then I know that I'm going to run this line well or that this center will come, will run this line really well for me, so it'll help us get back into the game if you've lost a bit of momentum. Mm-hmm. Um, you certainly, I think with a coach, if you're a 10, you, you sit down with him early in the week and he says, this is what I'm thinking. Um, how do you feel about this play? And you'll say, oh, I don't know about that one, but this one might work. And then as soon as you leave that meeting, you've decided, all right, these are the first two plays that we're going to run with. Really? Um, yeah. And then often you, your first play or your first two plays, whether it's how you're going to get out of your end or how you're going to attack, mm-hmm. is, is pretty well structured so that everyone can hit that ground running and you go 100%. You just know exactly your role. And you just execute it the best you can. Yeah, I just never heard anyone ever talk about their favourite moves or their favourite whatever it just, may be. Yeah, I just reckon that you know there's certain players that you know run a line better than others. So, there's, you know, I knew with, we knew with Sterling that he ran that outside to in line really well. Yeah. Where he just run short off, uh, you know, Stephen Larkham. And for me, I could just split as hard as I could because, you know, I often felt that was my probably my best line when I was playing with him. Mm-hmm. And the way Stephen used to throw that ball, he'd send it in front of me that I'd had to split even harder to catch it. Yeah. And it'd often open up the defences because when Sterling came short and I split out the back, mm-hmm. one guy stuck on him, the other one drifted to me, and then I'd have the inside winger just on my hip. And so if I got tackled by that guy, I'd just play inside and there's a big hole for the winger. But if he held off for the winger, then I could just keep splitting outside and I'd have Joe Roth or... You know, they were just plays that we knew worked well for us. Oh, so I think there's certainly games where 
or players where you know that they run a certain line really well mm-hmm. and you'll try and use that because that's his best line. It's going to serve the team the best way. Now, you've got some really interesting tools in Toulon. So let's talk about that a second. Now, it's been a few years since Johnny's left. What? Uh, uh, he's two years, I think. Two, yeah. two years. Uh, one of the most fascinating guys for me is Matthew Basterill. How do you go about using him? Because I think when he's playing well, when he's on song, he is a, he's a force of nature. Yeah, he is. And I think, well, obviously, you know, Buster's best line is, is to play tight. And um, when he runs it hard, uh, I think you've just got to get him involved in the game. You, you get him involved early and he does something well and he builds on confidence. Like you said, if he's going well, it's very hard to stop him. Oh. So he, I think the big cue is to give him early ball and if you can just – once he's running his good lines and he, he's coming – Rather than running into people, he's actually running into into space. Like he's even harder to stop. I know he's hard if he runs into you, but effectively, like you slow him down a bit, then someone else can tackle him. Whereas if he runs like an inside shoulder, you can't stop him. Like he's just he's just freakishly strong. And I just you know, obviously on the weekend, I thought he had one of his best games. Yeah, agreed. I thought he's brilliant. He seems to do this like every so every couple of months he has one of these games. You think that is just absolutely incredible. And I was lucky enough to see him uh, in the flesh when you came to sale. And when you see him in the flesh, that's when you realise what a proposition he is to stop. Uh, it's just that kind of handoff to the chest, outside break. Uh, oh yeah, and then the offload. It's quite something. Yeah, exactly. And once he's got that confidence, you know, it's. Uh, I think also with Mar, he's um, he's enjoying playing with Mar because Mar takes some defenders as well because he's huge like he's sizable as well <laughs> yeah. you know so you can't afford to so Buster's getting a few more one-on-ones which for us is good because he's very hard to stop one-on-one okay changing tact slightly an area of your career I'd like to talk about was your stint at the force can you just tell me how this all came about well we got I uh, got offered a big deal from um, a company called Firepower Mm-hmm. which was a major sponsor of the force, which ended up being nothing. You know, they um, they promised shares. He wrote down, he wrote down, what do you write down my contract? Something like 250000 or 500000 worth of shares on a napkin and hand it to me. And I was like, mate, this isn't the contract. But, like, we joke about it now. Like, we're saying, just hang on to that napkin. You know, it, things are going to float. It's going to happen. But, um, you know, that never obviously came through. But, I mean, with that aside, I had an awesome time there. Like, I loved being in Perth. I've still got a house there. Um, we um, we were there, but we were never – I think we we had a really good team. We are competitive, but it just wasn't in our minds, like, actually playing for finals. Like, we just wanted to play well, win each game, obviously. But, I don't know, it just didn't seem – the mindset compared to what we're at here in Toulon, where it's – you you know, you're playing to win. You, you want to win every competition you're in. It was just not the same mentality at the time, but it was awesome. I really enjoyed it. Really, really good bunch of guys. It was the first time I'd moved out of home, so I had to try and survive that way, which was a good experience for me as well. So when you go back to Australia now, where is home for you? Home's where family is, really. So mm. we go, my wife's family's in Melbourne yep. uh, and Sydney, So, and I've also got family in Sydney, and majority of my family's in Canberra. So oh, we right. spend like four weeks um, between the between the two or three uh, three places. Mm. So uh, just going back to that deal then with, with Firepower, 
Did you uh, did, did you not have an agent, or did no one check th- check this over before you you know packed your bags and went over to the force? We did. We, I mean, this guy was just incredibly creative. You know, we um, I don't know. He's just a salesman. Like he he was the major sponsor of the force. He then became major sponsor of the Sydney uh, Kings, a basketball team. Uh, he was in the South Sydney Rabbitohs, the rugby league team. Like he could, without actually paying anything, he got his brand out there. But uh, I mean, unfortunately, there were a lot of investors that put money into this company. Um, thankfully, I didn't. But a lot of you know people that probably couldn't afford it, you know, going on these promises of getting ten times your money and, and whatever else. But it just didn't happen. You know, he was just. We. I went to his house. He let me use his yacht one day. We took this boat out. <laughs> To Porkerol, and not Porkerol. That's here. Um, we took it out to um, oh, where do we go? They've got the quackers out there, Rottnest Island in uh, in Perth. Mm-hmm. And he went to his mansion, which is overlooking a cliff. It was like eleven million dollar mansion. Like he had everything to suggest that he was, was the real deal, but it just didn't come through. And that's that's absolutely staggering. It really is. So, what was the end result then for? Fire pellets or well, you know. firepower. I think in the end, unfortunately, they. I think he, he can't do business for twenty years or something. They may have ruled on. I'm not a hundred percent on these yeah. details, but I think he possibly may have. I don't know. Got away with a lot of the investors' money, or I don't know what happened. But all um, I know is it just wasn't good for a lot of people that actually did invest money. I mean, thankfully, I didn't. I still. Um, we were just, I still had mine on a napkin, which I was waiting, <laughs> waiting for on the float. You went back to Brumbies from Force? Yep, went back to Brumbies for two years mm-hmm. um, with the mindset of wanting to play the World Cup. And then after that, I, I, def, I always wanted to come over to France and experience top 14. Yeah. It's always something that interested me. So I knew after that 2011 that I was going to leave, whether I got picked or not. I'd signed at Toulon at the start of the year in 2011. Got you. Okay, so you've come over to Toulon now. I had um, the uh, well, the English French rugby journalist Gavin Mortimer on last week, mm-hmm. and he was telling me a little bit. Sorry, the week uh, the week before last, and he was telling me a little bit about the way that the French clubs set up their operation. Now, we know that the Australian franchises in Super Rugby are super professional. What was the first thing that you encountered when you came to France, and just go through some some of the differences. Um, what were the main difference? I think when I first came, I already had a player that was here, Matt Henjack, and he'd kind of given me a heads up and sent me photos of the gym and and kind of everything that was going on around the area that I'd lived. So nothing was really a surprise. I'd seen photos of it. Um, What was a challenge was when we first got here, within the first month, my wife had a – we had our first – child like my boy Levi the eldest mm-hmm. and that was interesting mate. trying to learn I didn't even speak any French at all and they're telling us in medical terms you know breastfeeding and we're over here alone so that was just that one was just horrible that that first I mean it was great to obviously have a child but it's just <laughs> yeah Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile with the price of just about everything going up during inflation we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. That was just, that was really, really tough um, adjusting to that. But then after that, you know, we kind of found our feet. There was nothing really that could be much worse or harder or more difficult, you know, for, for us. So... From then on, it was pretty good and pretty cruisy. I've had a really good time here and uh, we've been successful, which helps. But, yeah, it's just, it's been uh, it's been really good. In one of my previous interviews with Drew, we spoke about the differences and how things are done very differently at Toulon. Do you think that you simply don't have to train quite as hard because of the amount of talent and you guys are already established when you get there rather than somewhere at the Brumbies where you're constantly fighting to prove yourself? Yeah, I think it's all about the quality that you sign. You know, so we um, who you recruit. If you you can't just recruit big players, you got to recruit guys that are good for the environment as well. Mm. You know, ones that you know work hard. Like Johnny was a perfect example. You know, he would be the first in there. Everyone obviously knows about his work ethic, but I think it's just important that you sign these type of players because, yeah, I mean, you can get away with doing less here, definitely. But I think what drives a lot of the a lot of the players that are successful are the ones that are worried about that fear of failure or not performing well. So you, you do prepare just as you would back in Australia. I yeah. think um, there's definitely things that are different. I mean, when I first came, our physio was down on the sideline smoking cigarettes, having a rosé during a game <laughs> because he said that rosé helps him treat. He can treat better on that. So Oh, it makes sense then. Stacks up. It, but, I mean, that. There's just little things that now, for me, it's just like the norm. It's just like, oh, no, in France. You know, like if someone says, like, a guy will come over for the first time. When Drew first came over, he mentioned the bloke smoking. I said, yeah. So what do you expect? We're in France. You know, like for me, it's it's kind of normal now. I've been here five years, five and a bit years. So I don't know. I think maybe even I'm a bit French. Yeah, I guess you just assimilate into the culture. Well, yeah, it's just it's normal now. You know, like... Um, it's even little things now. Like here in France, when you walk into a room, you're supposed to greet everyone. You say, G'day, how are you? Bonjour. Yeah. Like to everyone. I did that when I first went back to Australia um, three weeks ago in uh, the Hawthorne <laughs> change room there. And everyone looked at me like a weirdo. Like, you don't know me. What are you touching me and shaking my hand for? Because it's, it's, I don't know, it's not the same culture in Australia. You walk in, you say G'day, and that's about it. But I don't know, I kind of like that about France, that whole greeting thing. Um, but yeah, it's just little things like that you just get used to, and I don't know. It's just for me, it's it's more the normal now. So it's really hard when you say what's strange about here because I'm sure there's so many things that are weird, but I just don't. I can't think of any right now because I've been here long enough that I kind of consider it normal. Well, the thing that I find fascinating 
and lots of guys have told me this have gone over to play in France, is the fact that you get so many people going there just to watch training. Yeah, yeah, we get France. the same people um, there all the time. They want a photo. They want their poster sign. And I'm thinking, how many posters have you got? Because you're coming all the time. But we appreciate and we love the support. But it is – that is uh, – I suppose that's just the norm. So I didn't even think about it. But then when you start talking about it, I said, oh, yeah, that happens here. Because I reckon a lot of it has to do with the chômage as well, which is like the, the dole system here in France. Okay. Uh, a lot of people are on that. So you – um, the system's so good that they're getting paid to be on a holiday. So why not turn up and support your your local team, which they are fanatical about. It's a it's a real religion here in in Toulon, and I'm sure the other areas in France as well. Well, I've got a couple of days off now from my day job, and quite frankly, nothing could cheer me up more than being able to go over to Carrington and watch sail train. But I think I'd probably get arrested. <laughs> you can't do it. Well, there's we still have private sessions. You know, if okay. you want to get something done there still is private sessions where we want to say we do a big execution session on how we're going to start or mm. um but people still turn up there's still maybe 10 in the stands i suppose but they're the ones that are always there and you know they're not going to tell the opposition oh right okay. they're the ones that if you turn up on monday and you haven't won they're like oh come on what's going on here oh i see so you've got a mixture of both them yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you, you see, you'll have an open session where people can turn up, or and then you have your closed sessions. It's the same with internationals. Mm. You know, you often uh, will have an open session early in the week where you just go through touch and have a bit of a flush out, flush the system. But then the rest of the week will probably be closed. It's just more often than not that they're open here compared to closed. Got you. Uh, tell me, how has things changed since uh, Mike Ford has arrived? A lot more English. He doesn't speak any French. Oh, okay. Uh, um, but we've got a translator. Um, yeah, I think he's got a certain style of play that he, he wants to implement, and um, you can see it starting to come out in, in the boys' play. Yeah. I think he's getting – he gets frustrated because I, he can't speak the language, um, for one, I think, and just getting things done, often just because it's the French way, it takes a lot longer than it would – anywhere else you know they're quite relaxed and it's um yeah it's it's i think the boys are really enjoying it but i i haven't been privy to a great deal of it because i've been injured yeah so i'll often do my training session so if the boys are playing they're in a gym at a certain time so i've got to get in get it done so that they've got the gym you know you don't want too many people crowded in there so the injured boys have to get in get it done before uh, the actual yeah. players the team are, uh, are preparing so who's out there helping Mike with the translation then? Because I assume you'd be the perfect guy if you were fit. Yeah, I think, well, ultimately your nine and tens are the ones that do the ideas. So I think it's just a matter of him working on that relationship, I think. And, you know, I, 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 I'm not totally privy to a lot of the stuff, but I think there's just certain ways that he wants to try and um, change a few things mm-hmm. um, and just improve or tinker with a couple of our attacking shapes and, and our defensive shapes. So obviously when you, you are the 10 that you can communicate that a little bit easier. Yeah. Um, but it's just we had Francois Trinduc and he got injured. Now we've got Pierre Bernard. Um, so I think he Mike does a lot of his talking with Ma, who, uh, who likes to or tries to implement as much as he can. And how is Ma's French? It's coming along. It's... Um, Oh, it's tough here. You know, I think unless you really want to, unless you really want to learn the language, then you, you're not 
you know, you won't learn it otherwise because you've got a translator and even the people in, in town who can't speak great English will still speak to you in English. Yeah. I think you would have spoken, obviously, we spoke to Drew uh, a few weeks ago or whatever, and he's been here three years, I think, and nothing. Really? Like, oh, very limited. Like, he, he can understand a lot, but he just can't get his point across. So he can say, obviously, hi, how are you? Thank you. Can I have this? Um, you know, but I think as far as really adapting, if you said to someone, if someone said to me, oh, I lived in Australia for three years, and you'd think, well, he's got good English then. <laughs> Whereas well, I don't know if you pick up here, but you can get by here um, unless you make the effort. So the club must be full of translators then? No, no, no. We've got one translator in a meeting that will translate a couple of things that the um, that the coach is saying or that if you've only got English-speaking people and there's a uh, the forwards coach who's French, he speaks in French, so then our translator will translate that for the English speakers. Mm-hmm. But on the field, you, you just do what you do. Like, say, a move means heater, and that's where the ten's just going to crash it up. Yeah, Everyone understands, even whatever language it was in. If it's chauffage, which is French for that, then everyone still knows that that word means that they're doing this. Um, so it's just learning the calls like any system that you've got, whether it's English, French, Chinese, it's one word. Mm. You've just got to learn that word and you know that it means this thing. It's not actually learning to speak. So it's um, everyone speaks basic enough French and English to say, you know, push or tackle or my ball. You know, everyone learns those basic things. Yeah. So you can get by. Now, during your career, you've played with a lot of impressive players and you played against a lot of impressive players. But when you first moved to Toulon, which has been the landing spot for a galaxy of stars for the best part of, well, what, eight, nine years now, who really impressed you? Um, yeah, I think, but it's not even, like, I'd, the way I've always trained and the way I've always played is people in my position, I turn up and I'm like, oof, like, he's good. Like, gee, I don't know if I'm actually as good as him, you know, like yeah. whether he's an Esquire or whatever, you just see their qualities. So a lot of the, the French people, even when I first came in, were, were incredibly impressive. Mm-hmm. Um, the first time you play with Carl Heyman or Stefan Armitage, which I didn't know anything about when I first came here, and you know he was probably our best player for two, three years. Yeah. Um, so there's just constant people there that um, were impressive. Yeah, obviously, it's very hard not to get impressed by Johnny's work ethic, alone from the side of, of who he is and what he's done and it just the way he trained, I just thought couldn't be good for your body. Like I'd never, he, I don't think he'd ever gone into a game fresh because he flogs himself that much, but he always plays well. So I was just like, imagine if someone freshened him up for a game. Uh, but it just never happened. It wasn't his way. He needed to put the work in to feel confident and feel like he could go out and do his job for the team. Yeah. It, does Johnny still come to training occasionally? Not this year. This year's the first year. I don't know if he has a. Contract. I don't know if we could afford him any longer. <laughs> I'm sure you could. Um, I've, I've, I have heard that he's been with the England kickers a fair bit, but I don't know yes. if he's doing both things. Well, I don't know. I noticed that as well. I actually sent him a message. He didn't get back to me. I said, mate, why are you helping them before you play Australia? Exactly. Because right. I consider him half Australian now because of playing with uh, myself and Drew and we'd often hang out with him and we went to his place in Majorca and had a a holiday there, which was supposed to be a holiday. Yeah. And every morning he'd wake us up and we'd be doing hill sprints and running around and like 
working really hard to the point where Drew was spewing halfway through it. And then we're like, oh, well, that was tough. At least we'll get to have a few beers and relax because we're on holidays. Yeah. No, it didn't happen. We'd then be playing beach cricket or rebounding, trying to catch as many balls you can, skinning it off the water, and he'd just be having his Diet Coke. I said, mate, some holiday that was. <laughs> I, I just don't – well, based on what you've said, it just doesn't sound like retirement's quite quite for him, unless he finds something equally as challenging to get into. Oh, I could only imagine. It would be disgusting thinking about the sessions that he's doing to himself alone. Like he would – often if you had a break, he'd train harder than he would if he was actually playing and training with us. Just because when he gets alone – I think he thinks, gee, this guy's probably training this hard. Mm. So then he'd go to another level. Like, it's just, I've never seen anyone that can push his body, like, through the pain threshold of fitness. Mm. And when he's just absolutely gone, he he just keeps going. Like, it's never enough for him. And I could only imagine what what type of sessions he's doing now. Yeah. Now, I'm not in any way comparing my experience to your experience because obviously uh, I played at a very, very low level. But the thing which impressed me more than anything, more than skills, more than anything, is that ability to work hard and work hard, work hard when no one's watching. I, I just can't imagine yeah, well, having the discipline to do it. And, and that's the hard thing. Like for me now, it's um, coming back. So for I couldn't do anything for three weeks, not move, not anything. And then you've then got to start training and do your your fitness work and yeah you've just you've got to be willing to train by yourself but not just train by yourself but you've got to willingly put yourself in a hole to be able to come back and be fitter when you finally do come back yeah and you've got to be willing to do it alone and i think that's probably the biggest thing or the hardest thing about being a professional rugby player yeah. for a long period is to keep that motivation not when you're playing but when you're injured or when you're on holidays to work hard and, and still make those sacrifices, you know, not have that massive night out because you've got to get yourself ready. Um, that's probably just been the hardest thing for me. Yeah, and, and some lads, they they just love it. In fact, I'm convinced that some, some rugby players like the act of working out more than they actually like <laughs> playing rugby. I'm convinced. Yeah, well, our, our, um, our manager here, who's the translator, he was saying, you know what, kids? I used to love it. I used to love training, you know, working hard and getting ready, but... When the games came, I hated it. I hated being nervous. And I was like, why would you play for so long, Tom? Like, why would you play for so long, like, if you didn't enjoy the actual game part? Like, all you want to do is train. He's like, well, I don't know. It's a good question. That is a good question. Like, uh, like I just couldn't get my head around it because I love that feeling of, of playing and that nervous energy you get before playing. Mm. But also, like... When you're in that game and you're starting to string things together and the team's going well, like there's no better feeling when you're all smiling, high-fiving after tries and you're putting on a bit of a clinic. Like, I, I don't know, I just really enjoy that whole competitive side of things. Yeah, well, what's your mindset before you go into a game? Because I think people are broadly split into two, aren't they? There's the guys that can't wait because they're dead confident they'll get on there and they'll run everyone over. And there's other guys that are almost sick before they play because they're just worried about do, doing badly. Yeah, I don't get worried about doing badly it's just your fear of failure i suppose because i don't know toulon's always like a, a big team and you just think that everything's going to be get picked up whatever you do it's like even brian obana did this shocking kick against Charlotte, <laughs> yeah, and it's everywhere today as it should be because it was disgusting but you know it's just that little thing that that fear of of doing something like that 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 keeps you working hard and keeps me focused but 
yeah, I just get excited about the game. Like for me, I just if I'm playing ten, then I the first half of the week I just try and get my head around how we're going to play, mm-hmm. so that by the time the back end of the week comes, it's very clear to me how we're starting, so I don't even have to think about it. Yeah, and that's when I get really excited. When my preparation's really good at the start of the week, then my the back end of the week I'm just excited and just want to get into the game. Now, when you've decided how you want to play, then. Do you go and tell the guy, say, on a Wednesday, right, we are doing this and here's what you need to do? Well, often you'll – so I'll learn the plays earlier than other people if I'm a, a 10 mm-hmm. uh, so that at training I'm calling him, say, on a Tuesday so the coach will move you around. Okay, line out here, scrum here, and you already know the play, how you're going to uh, start the game. Yeah. And through that the players learn how we're going to be playing. They, they would have already seen a – video footage of the weaknesses of the opposition or opportunities that we think we can see. Yeah. So that they've already got their mindset around that and then it's just a matter of going out and executing it because the coach and the playmakers often come up with, you know, your style of play. Well, not just the playmakers, but the like a leadership group. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, I mean, we've spoken about Mike Ford taking over this year. Last year was a little bit unusual because you had Bernard Lepore as your coach but he also had half an iron running for the presidency of the FFR, which he subsequently got. Because of that distraction, did you get more creative control last year than you had in previous years or indeed this year? No, it got really difficult last year because uh, Morad obviously wanted Bernard there, but he had his eye on that presidency. So Morad would allow him to then turn up on a Thursday. So the first half of the week, we're kind of half preparing for a team, but with no confidence because Bernard may come in and just change it. He may just say, no, look, I've played this team. This is how we should be playing. So it was always limited preparation, which was which was tough. You know, yeah. the first 20 minutes of most games, I'd be getting a feel of how we're going to play through the defence we're facing, not so much from the review we've done because it hadn't been entirely clear. So throughout that first 20 minutes, I'd look at Mar and say, you know, what are you feeling? What do you think about this? And we get our feeling through the game that way. So that was that was difficult. Um, but, I mean, I'd had some so many successful years with Bernard that you'd just um, take his word for it. It was just hard for that, me preparing that late in the week when I like to get everything ticked off. You know, like I was saying before, by Tuesday I like to be pretty confident on how we're going to be playing. Obviously you can change a few things depending on injuries or personnel, mm-hmm. but, you know, you you your base of how you're going to play, I like to know by Tuesday. Did he not have a right-hand man or, or a number two running did, sessions but, on Thursday? I mean, we had our backs coach here, Steve Mann, and um, Jacques Delmas was the forwards coach. But yeah. we also had Diego Dominguez, who was learning a bit through Bernard, but he wasn't here. And then we'd have a, something that the coaches had put to him, and then the coaches would come out and say, no, nope, not doing that. We're, we're now going this way. I'm like, oh, right, okay, no worries. Oh, right, I see. Yeah, that must, I can imagine that that is very, very difficult. It, that was, I mean, that was really hard. But the thing was, you understood it because Bernard said he wanted to go for the presidency, but Moyad also wanted him here because of what he could bring. So he said half the week he won't be here and everyone was okay with it, but it just it proved difficult for the players. And I think it got pretty difficult for the staff too because it's very hard to prepare. What do you do? You just feel time for that Monday, Tuesday um sessions so it was uh yeah it was just it was just different you know and i i think obviously not ideal for anyone well i'm sure morad is delighted because there's some things that bernard Paul was suggesting that i think he was in favor of 
I'm ho- I'm sure that you are too, from a personal point of view. And it'll be interesting to see what he actually does with the presidency now that he has it. Yeah, well, I mean, there's a lot of ideas I'm sure he has, and there won't be all that I'd agree with. But yeah. what yeah. was funny, I read in the in the press, and I got asked about it yesterday at a function with Toulon, they were saying how nice it was that I think oh, I sent Bernard a congratulatory message because he said in the press what touches me about you know rugby isn't so much what you win, but it's the friends you make along the way. And mm. make no mistake, I'm really good mates with Bernard, and I send him texts all the time and just mucking around joke ones and whatever, but I did not send him a congrats message. And then I read, it was in the press, and I was like, this bloke is just... It's like he already had his speech ready about <laughs> winning, but he actually didn't even... He probably didn't get any of the messages of Bucky's or myself. Well, he didn't get my one, but it's... Um, yeah, he's just—he's just good that way, you know. He can manipulate the press, and he, uh, yeah, he's just—he's just crafty that way. There you go. Breaking news right here. This is probably bigger than Hillary's emails. Actually, <laughs> earth-shattering news, but it's just more so the way it just speaks. Like he's just—just just the way he does things. It's kind of smooth, and he already has his speech ready. Probably had his speech ready before, you know, he'd even been elected. So he'd written these players down before. Well, I've never been fortunate enough to meet the guy. But um, as I mentioned before, I interviewed Gavin Mortimer a couple of weeks ago. He said that he interviewed him and he's just full of energy. As an individual, he just never stops. Oh, like it, it got to a point at trainings where he'd scream at you, no, no, mate, don't do that. Look, here's the space. And I was like, mate, do you want to play? I threw him the ball. I said, well, why don't you do it? He said, because in the game, you're not going to be here. <laughs> and then like he takes a back seat, but he, he finds it so hard to, to take that back seat because... If you make a mistake, which you obviously do in a game, mm-hmm. he, he wants training to be that perfect that it's just not realistic. And it gets to a point where it gets frustrating, but, I mean, it works in the end because you, you're worried about – well, you're constantly thinking about not so much making a mistake for TV, but making a mistake because in that video session, yeah. Bernard's going to pull it up and just go you. like He'll pick anyone out and just destroy them in front of the whole team, and it's the worst feeling. The only player he never did it for – which was, and he made mistakes, believe it or not. I know he's English and he made mistakes, but Johnny, he never got, never got picked out like that. Yeah, well, I guess, I guess the thing with Johnny is, it's not like he could work any harder. You know, he's kind of, he's, he's, he is as good as he'll ever be. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're all working hard. Yeah, but yeah. I think at the, at the point, if we'd lost, see, there's a game, like, if we kicked a goal, um, we played poorly, but... We kicked a goal over and we won. And Bernard was over the moon, thought it was a great game. And then there's other games where we'll play well but lose. Those games happen. And he just won't understand it. So it's just, it's very results uh, driven here, which I think all of it is. You know, you obviously want to win, but there's ways of winning, ways of losing. Mm. And um, those video sessions, they were something else. I can imagine. Are there any other coaches you've worked with who have got that kind of intensity? That. That are aggressive like that. I think no, Eddie no, Jones just... is another one. Oh, go on, yeah. Look. He, um, I mean, he's just a player that would make you. I'm a player, sorry. He was a coach that would just make a player really think. Yeah. Like, I'd come in after a good Super Rugby season, and he'd say, "Get where do you see yourself, mate?" And I said, "Oh, like, you know, I thought I had a pretty good season, and things you know, went went quite well. He said, well, but what do you need to work on, mate? Who's the best centre in the in the country? I said, oh, at the moment it's probably Elton Flatley. And he said, why, mate? I said, oh, because he, I know he's a good defender. 
He said, and you, mate, what what are you doing poorly? I said, oh, defence. And he's just looking at me, staring at me like, and I just know that I'm not saying the right thing. I've got to say more. So I said, oh, breakdown. And he said, just kept looking. I said, oh, my consistency with my kicking and, you know, just my consistency in my overall game. He said, Jesus, mate, have you got any confidence? And he's just like, it's just the type of guy that he is. Like, you don't know where you stand with him. Yeah. And you've, and I think that's what keeps players working so hard because I thought I had a good season, but he made me pick out every little thing that I'd done wrong and then told me then to go work on them. So it's just – and I think that's what he's doing with England. No one feels comfortable. I'm sure Ben Youngs, who got the player of the series, wouldn't feel comfortable because Eddie would be telling him things that he did wrong. I guess I'd just like to know more about him because he's clearly a brilliant mind, clearly a great coach, proven that with England and Japan, but – there are also instances of disappointment, like Queensland Reds, like his stint at Saracens, and despite him being popular with the lads, there is a lot of reports of him being a spiky character, and well, you know, including yourself. Just, says he's well, very talented. Just tiny things. I think he cares about the players too. Like when you're in that environment, he will go you really hard in front of at training and scream at you and tell you what you're doing wrong. But then publicly, he'll. He'll back you a bit more, so he gives you a bit more confidence. Mm-hmm. Um, he just little tiny things which you don't think about. So there was one line when we we're playing New Zealand. He wanted us to go on inside shoulder. So I went, I went up forward, and then I'd step off my left foot towards the right, and I'd switch Sterling Mortlock under me, so he'd be running that inside shoulder line. Mm. And he said, "See, there you go. That's your best line." And then I was like, "Oh." He said, here, come over here. And I watched it and just thought about that. That week, I implemented that a lot more, not even thinking about it, but now because he'd mentioned it, I started to think about it and I implemented it in that game. It might just be a 1% of it, but it makes the team then perform better because it gets Sterling into his best line. Yeah. I'm dragging defenders across, but if he's doing that across the board for every player, those small little increases, it makes a big difference. By the way, can I just say your Eddie Jones impression is spot on. Yeah, well, I've, I've been screamed at him enough that, to know how he, how he sounds. Well, from Eddie Jones to Michael Checker, let's just briefly talk about your relationship with him. Kind of out of nowhere, ALU decided that they were going to bring in players with over 60 caps that happened to play in Toulon. Did you have <laughs> any idea? This is in the offing, and how did it all come about? Um, well, I had a talk with him just about... Um, the possibility of coming back and playing Super Rugby um, leading into the World Cup because it was obviously something I wanted to do, but Super Rugby wasn't something that interested me. You know, I was happy here. My family's happy here. Um, I kind of ticked that box as far as Super Super Rugby is concerned. So I said, no, I can't. Um, I said, mate, as much as I would love to, I just the uh, Super Rugby, I just can't do it. And then I heard whispers about them trying to implement a new rule um, and again, this wasn't even guaranteed that I was going to be selected. It was just more finding out if I was interested in going back to Australia to, to be possible, you know, possibly selected. Um, and then this new law, I'd heard about it, and then it came out, and I was 100%, and I was like, oh, so well, maybe, we're, maybe we're a chance here now. Like with Drew, I'd be talking with Drew, and Drew, neither of us had, had heard anything, so we just thought it was all just more so leading for guys like Adam Ashley Cooper, Sakopi Kepu, all these players that were leaving after the World Cup mm. so that he could still select them and keep his depth um, with the Australian team. But it turns out that we, um, 
me and Drew were lucky enough to get picked and I got my 100 caps and nearly got the, a bit of a fairy tale end there playing the World Cup final, yeah. but you know, it's not to be. Well, it was certainly a better World Cup for your involvement. However, despite your personal benefit from it, do you think it is a good idea for players to be based in Europe and then travelling back in transits 12 hours or whatever it is to get back for the championship? Yeah, well, I think you look at Will Gandy, as long as they're selected on form, you know, not reputation. I think Will Gandy, you look at his inclusion when he went back, he played really well. Mm. Um, I think... If it's on form, then absolutely. I think it's great for the team because you've got guys that go back into this environment that haven't been around super rugby, haven't been in those mid-season tests. It's kind of like a new energy that's been brought back in. Yeah. You know, new guys, new players. It feels like a new group again. Whereas if it's the same continual people all the time, then it can get a little mundane. I know this is probably doesn't sound right. When you're playing for your country, you should be driven and you should be um, obviously – everyone's proud to play for your country, but environments can get a bit stale if you're constantly around the same environment all the time. It's just the nature of the beast. So I think bringing in these different players, as long as, as I said before, they're selected on form, not reputation, then yeah, I see it as a really good thing for well, for Australian rugby, and I don't know if anyone else really does it, but um, yeah, for us, it, it, I think it, uh, it is a good thing. Yeah, it's an interesting one. You know, People might get very angry with me now, but I think there's too much international rugby. I think there's so much now, it's even starting to get a bit diluted. And it feels like that might be rubbing off on the players. Because, if, say, if you're an England player or a Welsh player, I mean, they're constantly in camp. It's almost, for some of the Welsh lads, it's almost like they're first and foremost a Welsh player and occasionally they play a club and, game. And that's the thing, like, the club season is long in itself. Yeah. You know, I've seen firsthand here at the, the French players, they go there and then because they're, and because it's privately owned here, that when you come back for the club, the president and the players, like, well, not the players, but the coaches expect you to play. It's almost like you've been on a holiday, but you haven't. You've been playing test footy, training at test you know, intensities. Mm. But you're going to be flat and you're going to be tired, but the way it is, you've got to play. You know, you, This owner is paying you to play for the club. He's not paying you to go play international. So you can, I can understand both sides of it, but I, I think either the test rugby, there's too many test matches or there's too much club football, that these players playing both of them can't perform at every game at the same intensity and play longevity just isn't in it. You know, they can't be doing this for a long time. Yeah, I completely agree with you there. I think there needs to be less internationals and the club game needs to slim down a bit because the workload on the players now is just excessive. Yeah, it is. And I think, well, I think Super Rugby had a... I remember when we were playing, our Tri-Nations was, uh, obviously it wasn't Four Nations. Um, I'm not saying Argentina shouldn't be there. They should be there. Yeah. But maybe limited to, I don't know, one game you play. When I first played in two Tri-Nations, it was one year we'd play away um, in South Africa. The next year we'd host them. Yeah. It wasn't a home and away. Um, the only team we played twice was uh, New Zealand. That was for the Bledisloe Cup. So you had to win both games to get it back or win one to retain it. So you'd end up play. What'd you play? You played. Uh, it was four. No, you did play a home. Um, maybe you played four games. I think it was four games you played in the Tri Nations. Your Super Rugby was, you know, twelve teams. So you play each team once, and then possibly finals. So already there, you're looking at a lot less games. And then your end of season tour, you'd have four tests. So yeah. you're Looking at what eight tests. It's 
I mean, that type of thing, I think, um, allows the players to play at a high intensity, gets the spectators probably wanting more, so they'll turn up in numbers because there's less games, um, mm. and you're going to see a better quality of game. Yeah, I mean, I love watching Australia play. I love watching New Zealand play. I genuinely do not need to see Australia play New Zealand three times in the space of a month. I, I don't I don't need it. I don't think the fans need it, and the players cer- certainly don't. I don't see what's wrong with playing... You know, like Six Nations, alternate home and away. There, yeah. there you go, done. Yeah, home and away, and then if you you win both, you get the, um, you know, you get the you get the Bledisloe Cup. If you don't, then they just got to win one. That's how it was before, and the games were pretty intense and they were good. There was a period there where we played four, I think, mm. but a lot of it has to do. You don't know too much about the revenue or whether it's obviously money driven, so. Yeah. I think at the moment it's um, yeah I probably tend to agree that it's either too much Test rugby or it's just too much rugby in general whether that's to do with club or or Test. Yeah. Now, do you think Toulon will end up being your last club? My last club? Yeah. Well, hopefully, unless you know something I don't. Oh, so there's no intention to come over to the Aviva sometime, or maybe have an excursion to one of the American teams if that gets established properly. Uh, yeah. Well, I think that. That might take a while, you know. I think the they uh, I don't think they want me. But as far as the Aviva goes, I I just don't. Um, I like watching it, mm-hmm. but every time that we used to tour with the Wallabies, it was always in November. Yeah. So I've always had a real negative mindset, not towards England, but just towards the weather. Like for me, <laughs> when I think about it, I just think of that rain and cold and <clears throat> grey clouds, and I just picture that being England for nine months of the year and that would just rugby aside like rugby is important but I think lifestyle if anything from coming to Toulon has shown me that if you have a good lifestyle outside of it you'll really enjoy your rugby as well so it um, unfortunately no I don't think I'd ever really consider going and playing in the Aviva well they definitely have you and we would love to watch you so uh, that, that that is a shame yeah I'm sorry <laughs> nothing against you guys in particular it's just it's your, your weather uh, well, Matt, you've been an absolutely fantastic guest. Thank you so much for coming on. And uh, if I ever get the chance to interview you again, I certainly will, and you're welcome on any time you want. Oh, great. Thanks a lot for that. Huge thanks to Matt for coming on the podcast tonight and giving up his time talking to me and talking to you guys. This is exactly why I do the podcast, to talk to individuals such as that. So I couldn't be any more grateful. Now, in a rather unusual move, I'm organised, meaning I can tell you who's going to be on next week, and it is Nick Mullins from BT Sport. Nick is currently in France, interviewing Ron O'Gara at uh, Racing Metro, and I don't think there's going to be anyone else in the entire country who's watched more live rugby this year than Nick. So we're going to get into all sorts of topics, and it'll be great fun. So until next week, when it'll be me and Nick, let the boys play, and I will catch you then. Bye-bye. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. 
If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.